0: The Bradford Exchange presents The Classic Radio Theater with your host, Carl Amari. Countdown for blast off. X minus one. Yes, it's Maxwell House Coffee Time starring George Burns and Gracie Allen.
1: Richard Diamond, private detective. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. Suspense.
0: It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks.
1: Dragnet. We offer you escape. Kraft
2: presents the Great Gildersleeve.
1: I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United
3: States Marshal.
1: (laughs) Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. The Jack Benny Program.
0: Welcome, everyone, to Episode 61 of the Classic Radio Theater. Each week, the Bradford Exchange and participating sponsors bring you three hours of the Classic Radio Theater featuring programming from the golden age of radio. This time we'll hear two true crime episodes of The Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. We'll begin after this short break. Produced in the UK and starring Orson Welles, the Black Museum specialized in recreating colorful true murder cases taken from the annals of Scotland Yard. At the Real Black Museum, located at the Metropolitan Police Headquarters in London, artifacts from famous criminal trials are displayed. These curious and sometimes gory relics, a yellow tooth, a battered trunk, a bloodstained knife, gave Wells the opportunity to dramatize the murder cases in which they played vital roles. The series, which emphasized crime-solving techniques, offered American listeners the chance to observe how British coppers tracked down culprits. Released through MGM radio attractions and broadcast over Mutual, the series eventually gained a sponsor, General Mills. Gripping and well-paced, the Black Museum outranked its competitors with its horror value upped by Wells's portentous narration, which bridged the plot sequences. Recording the program in the UK, with British actors playing all the roles, also gave authenticity to the dramatizations of crimes that took place abroad producer Harry Ellen Towers maintained a high level of consistency and quality throughout the series, and the venture was profitable enough for him to convince Wells to star in another radio vehicle, The Lives of Harry Lyme. Time now for the first of two true crime episodes of The Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. In this first story, Janet Morgan, the Swamp Girl, is found murdered. Here's a brass button on The Black Museum.
3: This is Orson Welles speaking from London. Here in the grim stone structure on the Thames, which houses Scotland Yard, is a warehouse of souvenirs where everyday objects a candlestick, a china doll, a broom all are touched by murder. Now, take this button, this brass button. The symbol of a barracks parade ground, but this was not found on any parade ground.
4: This is interesting, sir,
3: a
5: brass button. Very interesting, Sergeant. It's from an army uniform.
3: Today, that button can be seen in the Black Museum.
2: From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's gallery of death, the Black Museum. In just a moment, you will hear the Black Museum starring Orson Welles. Museum starring Orson
6: Welles.
3: Well, here we are in the Black Museum, Scotland Yard's Museum of Murder. Shelf upon shelf of curious and repellent objects. The urge to kill, illustrated in many, many ways. Here lies death. Here, in the echoing stillnesses of the long room, one stands and looks at violence, expressed by the exhibits that line the shelves, the tables, and the walls. Repellent they may be, but by reason of their association only, for most of these tokens of murder are very ordinary objects. It's a medicine bottle. The drug it contained was beneficial in small doses. But since a woman was forced to drink the whole contents and died shortly after, the jury called it murder. Here's a kitchen knife. No household is without one, but this knife was not used solely for kitchen tasks. It was found embedded in a man's heart. Now, here we are, the brass button. It is. It's an innocuous, ordinary brass button. This was found near the dead body of a woman. But come back with me to the beginning of this story, to a day some years ago on the common, outside the Kentish village of Wayfield. A girl was sitting beneath a tree, busily sketching. She was too engrossed to hear the approach of a young soldier, until he spoke.
7: Hello? Hello? Sorry. Did I frighten
8: you? A little. I didn't hear you coming.
7: Oh, I made enough, row. You were so busy with whatever you're doing. What are you doing? Sketching. Can I see?
8: You'll probably laugh.
7: No, I won't. Show me. Mmm. That's very good.
8: Do you really think so?
7: Well, it's fine. You must be the one they call the swamp girl.
8: That's what they call me in the village. Huh. Poor, routine, dulled people.
7: You don't like routine ways of living, do you? From what I've heard, you're something of a rebel.
8: Am I? Hmm. You seem to know a lot about me. Oh,
7: I've heard things.
8: What kind of things?
7: About how you live in an old shanty at the edge of the swamp and how you roam the common and sketch and paint.
8: You're well informed.
7: People talk about you sometimes. I was interested.
8: And so you came down to see for yourself. What's the matter? Couldn't you find a girl in town?
7: Don't say that. I wanted to meet you. To talk to you.
8: And now that you have, will you please go away and let me work? Oh,
7: you can work any time. I'll go away soon. If you're nice to me.
8: Go now. I've no intention of being nice to you, whatever you may think. Come on. Get away. When you found out so much about me, you might have also found out that I'm not interested in men. Least of all, soldiers.
7: That's not very kind. Come here.
8: No. no. Go away. Come, Come on. here. No. 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 Please, please don't hurt me. No, please. No. Oh.
3: A woman screamed and cried for help on the Wayfield Common but there was no one within a mile to hear her screams. Two days later in the post office at Wayfield, a letter was returned by the postmistress.
5: Mrs. Riley? Yes, Jimmy? Uh, That registered letter you sent me out with, there uh, there was nobody about to sign for it. You
8: wasn't a swamp girl at home.
5: No, ma'am. I called out Miss Morgan, but there wasn't any answer.
8: You're all right. You can deliver it tomorrow. Yes, ma'am.
5: Her
3: name was Jeanette Morgan. But people of the town called her the Swamp Girl because of her vagrant, strange way of living. The next day, Jimmy, the postal messenger, rode out on his bike to deliver the registered letter. But once again, the Swamp Girl was not at home. Then on the way back, taking a shortcut, Jimmy found her.
5: Miss Morgan!
3: Jimmy saw only her legs, at first, protruding from a bush, which had been meant to hide her. At first, he thought she was asleep. He didn't think so for long.
6: She... she... she's dead! Uh, 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 I've got to get the police!
3: Murder transforms a little village like Wayfield. All work ceases. The people gather in small groups in the streets to talk about it.
8: Here, yeah, have you heard the news? There's been a murder. Aye?
9: A murder?
8: Yes, out on the common. Who? Oh. The swamp girl. They found her body.
9: I was rather afraid that poor girl would come to grief sooner or later.
10: Well, Vicar, you know how it is these days. No parental authority.
9: Ah, more's the pity. Be that as it may, the men who did it must be found.
4: You know, Bert, if young Jimmy Miles hadn't come upon that body like he did, it might have lain there hidden for months, even years. I wonder how it happened.
9: Well, now, the way I
3: sees it is this. Now, in the bar of the local, they it's sipped their beer and discussed the sensation. Jimmy became something of a hero. He'd found the body and even now is being questioned by the London detectives from Scotland Yard.
5: Uh, this is uh, Jimmy Miles, sir. Hello, Jimmy. You found the body, I understand. Uh, uh, y- uh, yes, Inspector Gallico. Uh, was she really murdered, sir? Well, that's what we must find out. And you can help us. Oh, really? How? I believe you rode out to her shanty at the edge of the swamp to deliver a registered letter to Miss Morgan. Yes, that's right, sir. She used to get a registered letter every month. I always took them out. And she had to sign for them, of course. Oh, yes. Then you got to know her, I suppose. Well, don't tell the postmistress, but sometimes I did stay and talk for a while. Uh-huh. <laughs> and what was she like? Oh, she, she was nice, uh, really friendly. People said she was a bit peculiar, but I never thought so. And she could draw, sir. Now, think carefully, Jimmy. Did you ever see her with anyone, man or woman? Never, Inspector. She had no friends around here. She once told me so. Mm, No friends, I see. Now, about this registered letter, was that the first time you had taken it out? Oh, no, sir. I went out the previous day, uh, on Monday, but she wasn't there. Did you call out? Yes, and I I went round the common to the places where she used to go and sketch. I knew most of them. And she wasn't anywhere about? No, nowhere at all. What time of the day was this? Well, I I just left the post office, just on 10. It's about half an hour's ride. So you were out there by 10.30. Hmm. All right, Jimmy. Thank you very much. Uh, Is that all, Inspector Gallico? Uh, That's all for the moment. You've been very helpful.
3: A lucky witness, young Jimmy Miles. A break for Inspector Gallico early in the case. For with the evidence of the police surgeon, certain facts could be established.
5: What's your verdict on the post-mortem, Doctor? Well, the cause of death didn't give us any trouble, Inspector. She was strangled. What about the time of
6: death? Hmm,
5: that's not so easy. I'd say she died 48 hours ago, at least. Wait a minute. That means before noon on Monday. It ties in, Doctor. Good. But at what time before noon? I would not care to predict. The contents of the stomach indicate she'd had breakfast. Then sometime between breakfast and noon she met her death. And she was nowhere about 10.30 when the postal boy brought her her letter. What about that letter, Sergeant?
4: Uh, I have it here, sir. Who is it from? It's from uh, Mrs. Morgan of Tunbridge Wells, her mother. Money, I suppose. Ten pounds, sir. And a plea to come home and live a normal
5: life. Poor Mrs. Morgan. Her daughter couldn't even die a normal death. (laughs)
3: the pattern of the crime begins to make itself clear. The victim's identity is known. The approximate time and the
9: cause of death is known. Now the hunt will begin for the killer. Here is a police message. The body of a woman named Jeanette Morgan has been discovered on Wayfield Common. Evidence suggests that she met her death by strangulation sometime before noon on October the 19th. Any person who was in the vicinity of Wayfield Common on that day or can give any information, should communicate with the nearest police station in order to assist in the search for the murderer. And in this, the police will be aided by a brass button, that same brass button,
3: that today can be found in the Black Museum.
2: In just a moment, we will continue with the Black Museum starring Orson Welles. And now, we continue with The Black Museum, starring Orson Welles.
3: To a small cottage in Tunbridge Wells now go the detectives from Scotland Yard. To a house with the blinds drawn, where a thin, bitter woman answers their questions in a strangely lifeless voice.
8: Yes, I knew I knew it was Jeanette when I saw the newspapers.
5: Why didn't you get in touch with us, ma'am?
8: I knew you'd get in touch with me if you wanted me. Besides, what business is it of mine?
5: But she was your daughter.
8: Was she? Jeanette's younger sister lives here with me. Works at a shop nearby. She's my daughter.
5: Yes, I see what you mean.
8: I warned her. I told her it had come to no good end in that strange and unnatural kind of way.
5: Mrs. Morgan, we won't trouble you any longer, but could you tell us, did your daughter have any close men friends? Men friends? Yes. Jeanette? I wish she
8: had. But a boyfriend would have been too ordinary for her. She had to be different. She had to be the swamp girl. I'm sorry. Why did it have to happen to her? To me? Why? Why, why?
4: Good evening. Uh, good evening, Vicar. I'm from the police. The police? I don't recognize you. Uh, no, sir. You see, I'm not from the local police, uh, I'm from London and I'm down here in connection uh, with the murder.
9: Oh, yes, terrible, yes. But uh, how can I help you?
4: Well, you can help a good deal, sir. You see, the local police are pretty shorthanded, and Inspector Gallagher has decided that our next move should be to make a very thorough search of the common, uh, particularly round about where the body was
9: found. Oh, I I see. And I suppose you want some help from my parishioners.
4: Yes, sir, that's uh, roughly the idea.
9: Ah, Very well, then. We'll help you in every way we can. You can depend upon us.
5: All right, Sergeant. Let's get on with the search. Very good, sir. You yes. take Smart and work in from the road. Right, I'll sir. take Rogers and work in from the field side. I'll meet you by the ditch. Yes, uh, so that'll be all right, sir. Uh,
4: here, sir. Here's a, a sketch, sir. It's a pencil drawing. of, the, of That
5: view across there, I'd say, sir. Yes, it is. Unfinished, too. She might have been working on it. What else have you got there?
4: Uh, This is interesting, sir. It's a brass button. Very interesting, Sergeant. It's from an army uniform. Uh Where's the nearest camp to Wayfield? I believe there's one across the river, sir, about uh, two miles away.
3: Inspector Gallico left his sergeant in charge of searching the common and went to the army camp to enlist the help and cooperation of the commanding
5: officer. Gentlemen, to see you, sir, from Scotland Yard.
7: Oh, uh, ask him to come in, will you, Captain?
5: Yes, sir. Uh, Will you come through, please? Thank you. Major Curtis, I'm Inspector Gallico from Scotland Yard. Uh, How do you do, Inspector? Sit down, won't you? Well, now, how can I help you, Inspector? I'm here to investigate the murder of uh, Jeanette Morgan. Oh, the swamp girl mystery. Yes. Yes, tragic business. Major... Not far from where the body was left, we found this. An army button. That's why I'm
7: here. I see. Well, I'd be glad to assist in any way I can, but uh, permit me to hope that it wasn't any one of my men. How many men are there in camp here, Major? Well, at the present time, our
5: unit's strength is 120. We're an engineer section, as you may know. 120 men, huh? Mm-hmm. I wondered if any of them has a button missing from his tunic. Well, if you wish, I'll order an immediate inspection. Not yet, sir. You can assist me in another way first. Oh? How, Inspector? Well, I want a list of all those absent from camp on Monday morning. Oh, that should be easy.
7: There's no leave on any week morning. If anyone was away from camp, it must have been for a special reason. Anyone at all. Between the hours of seven in the morning and one o'clock. Well, the adjutant can help us, though. I'll get him to make out a list of all those away from camp on Monday morning immediately.
3: The commanding officer was away a short time, and on his return, he brought with him a piece of paper... ...containing a list of names. He gave it to the London detective.
7: Yes, there you are, Inspector. Five men were away from camp during the time you asked about. Mm. Sergeant Willis, a company. Yes, he's our caterer at the present time. We're understaffed, of course. Sergeant Willis and Private Fields were in town with a provision truck. They were together? Yes, we could always check that with one or the other.
5: I don't think I'm very interested in those two. Oh? What about Private Liston, B Company?
7: Oh, he's the unit driver. I, um, uh, I sent him into town shortly before noon. <clears throat> on a private errand. Shortly before noon? <clears throat> well, that leaves two. Corporal Paul Ferris? Oh, he's our mailman. He leaves every morning at eight o'clock and drives the mail truck in to pick up the unit mail bag.
5: From the Wayfield Post Office, I suppose? Yes. What time does he generally return? Oh,
7: Sometimes by nine. Though on occasions he has to wait for registered mail, you know. I've even known him to
5: be held up as late as 11 or, or even 11.30. Would anyone know what time he returned on Monday? I'll find that out for you. Now, this last man. Private Williams, a company?
7: Yes, if you ask me, he might be your man, Inspector. Oh, why, sir? Because he was absent without leave. From 900 hours on Monday morning until 1400 hours. From nine till
5: two? Yes. Mm, that's interesting. I'd better see him. And the postal chaffee. I'll have them paraded.
7: Corporal Ferris? Private Williams? This is Inspector Gallico from Scotland Yard. He has some questions to ask you both. Thank you, sir.
5: Corporal Ferris, we'll take you first. Yes, Inspector. What time did you leave camp last Monday morning on your mail run? At 800 hours, sir. And what time did you return? Well, I... Uh... If I remember correctly, the mail was
7: brought round rather late that morning, Corporal. Yes,
5: sir. I was just about to explain
7: to the inspector. I had to wait for several registered letters.
5: What time did you actually return? Uh, Shortly
7: before 1100 hours, sir.
5: Thank you, Corporal. Now, Private Williams, um, you were absent without leave throughout Monday morning. Yes, sir. Are you able to give a satisfactory account of your whereabouts? I'd uh, prefer not to, sir. Private Williams has consistently refused any explanation of his conduct, Inspector. That's rather unwise, Williams. If you have an alibi, you'll need it. This is an investigation into murder. Murder? I didn't do no murder. I was with me girl in Wayfield. Ah. What's her name? Hey, Susie Walker, Nine High Street. You asked her if I wasn't there. Oh, I didn't want to get her into any trouble. You understand? That's all. For murder? Oh, I don't know nothing about the girl who was killed. Honest, I don't. Well, we'll check your statement, Williams. I've finished with him now, sir. Corporal Phyllis, Private Williams, dismiss.
3: Inspector Gallico drove into Wayfield to Number Nine High Street.
8: Oh no, Susie wasn't out with him that day. I remember it distinctly. She went over to see her girlfriend at Kenbury. Well, you can ask her yourself.
3: Susie Walker was a small, frightened girl, the counterpart of Private Williams.
8: Oh, Inspector, I hope he hasn't done anything wrong up at the camp in not telling them where he was. Oh, that'd be terrible. He wouldn't tell a lie, I know that. I'm sure of it. You see, we'd had a quarrel, and he wanted to see me. I didn't dare let Mother know, so I made up a
5: story about
3: it. She confirmed his alibi. And Gallagher went next to the post office
5: to interview Mrs. Riley. Just one inquiry I'd like to make, Mrs. Riley.
8: Oh, anything at all, Inspector. Anything. To think of that poor girl and my Jimmy Miles finding her body. Mrs.
5: Riley, uh, can you recall offhand whether you had any registered mail for the Army unit on Monday? Mm,
8: registered mail on Monday. Well, now, I couldn't remember offhand, Inspector, but I'll have it here in the book. Wait a minute and I'll look it up. No. No, there was nothing on Monday. There hasn't been a registered letter for the army since last week.
5: Then the postal corporal wouldn't have been delayed on Monday morning.
8: Oh, not him. He was in for his mailbag and out again, quick as you like. Didn't even stop for a chat. I remember that now.
5: What time would he have left here, Mrs. Riley? Can you give me any idea?
8: I can give it to you right on the dot. It's come back to me quite plainly, We open at 8.30. Corporal Ferris was here waiting when I arrived to open up.
5: 8.30. And he didn't stay?
8: No, not more than a few minutes.
3: The inspector picked up Sergeant Worthington and together they drove back to the army camp. A few orders from the commanding officer and Corporal Ferris was paraded once more. And his gear searched. At the bottom of his kit bag, they found what they were looking for.
4: Here, here we are, sir. A battle jacket with one button missing. And it matches, Sergeant. Uh, Ferris,
7: what have you got to say about this?
5: <laughs> that is, uh, crazy, sir. I didn't know anything about it. She was sketching, wasn't she, Ferris? She drew a pencil drawing of you, isn't that so? <laughs> You're bluffing. She didn't do any drawing of me. It was a landscape scene. A landscape scene, yes, so it was. And that fact has never been mentioned in any of the papers. Only the sergeant and I knew that, Ferris. And the killer.
3: Paul Ferris was taken into custody and charged with the murder of Jeanette Morgan, the swamp girl.
6: Silence! In court!
9: Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you have heard the facts in this case as related by the witnesses which have been called, both by the defense and the prosecution. The prisoner stands before you accused of the crime of murder, a particularly brutal murder, a murder without motive. But lack of motive is not necessarily a defense It is for you to decide whether the facts which you have learned during this case, not only the words spoken by the witnesses, but the mute testimony of the material objects placed before you, justify your verdict, which must be beyond all reasonable doubt.
3: The Brass Button and a slip of the tongue led to his downfall. Today, that brass button occupies a place of honor in the Black Museum.
2: Orson Welles will be back with you in just a moment. Here in person is Orson Welles. The picture was completed when the tracks of a vehicle
3: were found some 50 yards away from the scene of the crime. The tracks were identified as those of the mail truck of which the driver had been Corporal Paul Ferris. The defense did their utmost to prove insanity, but the jury were in little doubt that the man was sane and that his advances repulsed he'd strangled the swamp girl to death. They took 17 minutes to find him guilty, and the brass button which had led to his arrest was Exhibit A on the courtroom table, from where, at the end of the trial and the pronouncement of the inevitable death sentence, it was taken to its present resting place in the Black Museum. And now, until we meet next time in the same place and I tell you another story about the Black Museum, I remain, as always, obediently yours.
2: Black Museum starring Austin Wells is presented by arrangement with Metro Goldwyn Mayer Radio Attractions. The program is written by Creswick Jenkinson, with music composed and conducted by Sidney Torch, produced by Harry Allen Towers.
0: the Black Museum with a Brass Button, starring Orson Welles, from May 10, 1953, as heard over Mutual. All of the classic radio shows we present on this series are direct from the master recordings. I have more than 100,000 original radio episodes under license from the owners and estates, and we make them available via digital download or on CD through our Classic Radio Club. By joining the Classic Radio Club, You'll receive 10 superior-sounding classic radio shows sent directly to you each month, along with detailed liner notes and photos of the radio stars. You'll receive your first 10 classic radio episodes for only $1, and you can cancel at any time. To learn more about the Classic Radio Club, log on to ClassicRadioClub.com. That's ClassicRadioClub.com. I'll have another true crime episode of The Black Museum starring Orson Welles after this break. Welcome back to the Classic Radio Theater. I'm your host, Carl Amari. This time, a woman's powder puff, faded pink, is the clue that puts a murderer to the gallows. Here's The Pink Powder Puff starring Orson Welles on The Black Museum.
3: This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. From the Black Museum, a repository of death. Here in the grim stone structure on the Thames, which houses Scotland Yard, is a warehouse of homicide, where everyday objects, a piece of carbon paper, a tin ashtray, a broken teacup, All are touched by murder.
6: Now,
3: here's a woman's powder puff. Faded pink. We'll open the glass case and take it out. There you are, sir. Perhaps madame would like to take it. Ah, you draw back. The lace is pitiful and torn. Across the puff itself is an ugly stain. Once it was dark red, but... Its progress through the biological laboratory has left it bleached and pitted, where small areas have been teased out and examined under the microscope.
1: This sample belongs to blood group three. Are you sure? Wait. Group one is here as well. Blood groups one and three. That means there were two victims.
3: Yes, the faded pink powder puff was used to gag two victims before they were brutally murdered. That's why it can be seen today in the Black Museum.
2: From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, The Black
3: Museum. Here we are in the Black Museum. Yes, beyond these stone walls, London throbs and is alive. But within these rooms... There's silence and death. It's very quiet. Come with me. Under the freeze of death masks, the masks of criminals of bygone days suspended grimly under the ceiling, we pass slowly along the rows of murder exhibits, not always frightening in themselves, but terrifying when considered in relation to their history. They are matchbox. Here's a nail file. Each exhibit marked with the names of the killer and the victim. But our objective now is the powder puff. As it lies on the palm of my hand, let's turn back the clock and meet the man who used it for a grim purpose. His name, Richard William Hyson. The time, dawn on the morning of Friday, October the 18th, 1946. The place... Pentonville Prison.
1: This is it. Is it, boys? Take it easy, Hyson. You've got about a couple of hours. Uh, Give me a cigarette. Oh, thanks. (coughs) (coughs) You're too kind. (laughs) This is 20 days we've had in here, isn't it? Yes, 20 days. You won't forget me, will you? No, we won't forget you. Before I go, you must remind me to compliment the management. The food's been excellent. I can thoroughly recommend it to future guests. I've only one complaint. What's that, Heisen? The execution shed is too close. I'm sure I could hear the hangman practicing with a sandbag last night. Nonsense. Here, have a wash after I've finished my cigarette. All right, all right, no hurry. <laughs> no hurry. Two hours to go, two hours in which to reminisce. I think I was right not to see my mother and father. They wanted to see you. Oh, that's because they remembered me as I was. Big, blonde, and handsome. But they never really knew me. I nearly killed a girl when I was 16. Did you? Yes. It was at a kid's party. After playing Postman's Knock, we got tired of that. And I suggest that we should
3: play... The popular parlor game of murder. Somebody commits a crime in the dark and the rest of the party are supposed to discover the culprit. Young Richard Hyson entered into the spirit of the thing
1: with zest. <laughs> Jean, you, you come with me.
6: All right, Dick.
1: Let's, let's go upstairs. What should we do? Oh, Never mind, I'll tell you. Let's go up while nobody's looking. Come on. Here's a box room. Let's go in.
10: No, I'd rather not. L- let's hide here. In
1: you come. No, dear. Don't be afraid. It's only a game. I'm putting this handkerchief in your mouth.
6: Oh, let me go.
1: Now I'm squeezing your throat. Oh, oh. Shut up.
8: Jean, where are you? Oh, there you are. Where-
6: Dick! Jean, what's happened? Oh, he... He's killed
3: her! It was fortunate for young Dick Hyson. the girl was not dead. But she was hurt and badly frightened. The warders in the death cell Listen to Hyson's prelude to murder in silence. But perhaps their eyes betrayed their emotions.
1: You're shocked, aren't you? Oh, uh, give me the towel, will you? Oh, thank you so much. You make a good Batman. <laughs> Have you been in the services? I was in the Navy. Oh, interesting. That was the only service I was never in. I began in the Air Force. Yeah, so I believe. Yeah, better start dressing now. I enlisted as a pilot, fighter pilot. They gave me a commission, of course. Of course. Um, here's your tie. Yeah, thank you. I had only one complaint about the air force. Yeah. What was that? The pay. <laughs> so I volunteered to take over the mess funds. Well, oh, that helped. So did the uniform. You better put on a clean collar. Oh, I'm allowed a collar, am I? Oh. That uniform certainly pulled him in. Pulled who in? Well, who do you think? Remember the case of the Air Force girl found in the burnt-out car in Suffolk? So you were responsible for that, were you?
9: How did it happen?
1: (laughs) Now you're interested. Listen, boys, come on, gather round. I'll tell you about it before it's too late.
3: Richard Hyson could never bear to be anything but the center of attraction. He could never tolerate a disinterested audience. Even in his last hours, he had to hold his listeners. But how much of the truth he told will never be known. Nevertheless, a pretty girl of 21 had been found dead in a car close to the station where he'd been looking after the mess funds five or six years previously. And he told his warders how he had stopped her on a lonely road while she was driving a staff car. There. Want a
8: lift?
1: Oh, that's very nice of you. I'm going into Ipswich.
8: Oh, so am I. Jump in.
1: What's your name?
8: Parker, sir.
1: And your first name? Joyce, sir. I'm Richard Heisen. You can call me Dick and drop the sir.
8: Um, yeah, I think I've met you before.
1: Oh, I've seen you too. Had the command done?
8: Yes. Yes, it might have been. Well, it
1: was. I've been thinking about you ever since, Joyce.
8: Oh, oh I don't believe a word of it, Mr. Hystman. A
1: dick. Look out. Watch that bend. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, never mind, sweetheart. I've got nerves of steel. But I'd be happier if you let me take over.
8: Yes, perhaps it would be a good idea. Thanks. Oh, don't bother to get out. I'll get out my side. I must say it is nice to be driven for a change.
1: Good. What are your plans after you dropped the car into workshop?
8: As a matter of fact, I, I'm feeling rather good today. Mm-hmm. You see, it's my birthday and, and my mum sent me a very nice present this morning.
1: Well, oh, many happy returns. And how old are you? Twenty one. Congratulations. She's twenty one today. <laughs> <I'm> twenty one. <laughs> what did they send, you?
8: Money. Oh.
1: That's always the most sensible gift.
8: Yes, it is, isn't it? I say, are we on the right road? Yes, I
1: think
8: so. Hey, we're not, you know. We're right off the road now. Hey, hey, stop! Hey, I thought you were supposed to be a good driver.
1: So I am. Come here. Oh,
8: no, you've made a mistake. I'm not that sort of a girl. Let me go!
1: Yeah, you would, would
8: you? <coughs> you're mad!
9: Where's the money?
8: Oh, here. Here, take it. Now, let me go, please. Oh, no. Please please let me go. I promise I won't (laughs)
6: tell.
3: Hyson had no intention of giving his unfortunate victim the opportunity to tell. He had exceptionally large, powerful hands, his fingers being an inch across the joints. There is no doubt that poor Joyce Parker was helpless in his grip. When it was all over... He put her behind the steering wheel, started the car, and set fire to it. When the flames had a hold, he jumped off the running board from where he'd been steering, and the blazing car, together with its pathetic little passenger, plunged on until it crashed over the edge of a gravel pit. The crime had every appearance of being an accident, and Richard Hyson went to the picture alone that night. All expenses paid. He hadn't yet left behind any vital clues such as might be seen today in the Black Museum. We return to number two death cell in Pentonville Prison.
1: I was cashiered from the Air Force quite soon, and they found out about the Messicants. So I joined the Army as Paul Colton. Yes, we know about that. I built up a new history for myself, and being a pretty useful type, I I got a commission. Uh, that was in the early days of the war. Yes. Yeah. I probably wouldn't have got a commission later on. They started going into too much detail. How long did you keep the Army commission? <gasps> about a year. I lost it in the Middle East. That was really rather amusing. I was visiting the mess at HQ when I heard the general talking about selling his car before he was posted to a new command. And that gave me an idea.
6: Excuse me,
1: sir. Yes? Uh, my name's uh, Colton, sir. I, I'm sorry to hear you're leaving the command. Uh, <clears throat> I wonder whether you might be thinking of disposing of that private car of yours. Do you want to buy it? Yes, sir. You'd better have a word with my ADC. Uh, Smellers. Yes, sir? Uh, Mr. Colton here wants to buy the car. Sort it out with him, will you? Of course, sir.
3: And second Lieutenant Colton, alias Hyson, wrote out a check for 100 pounds, which was exactly 100 pounds
1: more than he had in the bank. (laughs) That check bounced quicker than a golf ball. But I'd sold the old man's car even quicker and spent what I got for it. So, bang went commission number two, eh? Yes, they cashiered me. Which I told them I thought was rather hard on a first offender. First offender? (laughs) Well, in the army, yes. Instead of coming home, I dropped off the ship in South Africa. I joined the army there. And believe me, it wasn't long before I got myself posted to England. That meant London for me. And those certainly were... Don, I'd like you to meet Muriel. Donald Smithers, Muriel Gutter. Oh, hello there. And what are you drinking, Muriel?
10: Scotch and water, thanks.
1: Yeah, oh, tough baby, eh? Well, good for you. Hi, Stuart. A very large scotch and a very little water for a pretty girl.
10: <laughs> You're quite a son of a gun.
1: <laughs> Believe me, ma'am, I've had to be.
10: <laughs> what are all those medals on your chest?
1: Oh, distinguished service order.
10: And this one I know. The Distinguished Flying Cross. Right, baby. I don't know these two.
1: Oh, well, the quiet I got it flying with the Free French, and that's the OBE, Order of the British Empire.
10: My, you're a hero. <laughs> you must have a drink on me.
1: Donald
3: Smithers, alias Paul Colton, alias Richard Hyson, had made the first vital mistake, which was to lead him to the scaffold. Needless to say, he was not entitled to any of those decorations. And he had sewn the ribbon of the OBE in the wrong place on his tunic. And, although he was still a captain in the South African Air Force, he was wearing the uniform of a lieutenant colonel. These points were noticed by an observant officer in the Royal Air Force who passed the information on to the security police. A rapid check-up followed it. Hyson was court-martialed and cashiered for the third and last time. Now he lived on women. During one short period, he was engaged to be married to no fewer than nine. And each one financed him to a greater or lesser degree.
1: Well, that took quite a bit of staff work, keeping them apart. But there was one I quite liked, Doreen Winson. You'd better get on with your breakfast. Yes, time flies. Doreen was a honey. Somehow, I never managed to get her alone for any time. I'd pass the salt for you. Thank you. I shouldn't have bought her that powder powder. You made a mistake there, Hyson. They all do. What do you mean, they? I'm unique. Remember that. The night I gave her the puff, we had a row. She wouldn't come back to the hotel with me, so I snatched back the powder puff while she was using it and walked out on her.
3: So Doreen Wimpson was saved.
1: I was pretty annoyed. I never did take to a brush-off. So I hung around outside the club where I'd met Muriel Girton. And I didn't have long to wait. Muriel.
10: Who's that? Why, Donald Smithers.
1: (laughs) Hello, honey. Come and have a drink.
10: Okay. Let's go up to the club.
1: Well, I haven't any money till the morning.
10: That's all right. I've got plenty.
1: Have you? I don't believe it.
10: Then look at this.
1: A handbag opens,
3: stuffed with notes. The fate of Muriel Gurdon is sealed.
1: Look, sweetheart, I'm not the type of man who takes money from a pretty girl. Not even from you. If you'll come back to my hotel, we can get all we want on my bill.
3: So back to the hotel in South Kensington.
1: And at the last moment, Hyson stopped abruptly... as if struck by a sudden idea. We'll have to go gently, honey. I just remembered. They won't serve drinks to visitors after hours. We'll have to go in the back way, where we won't be... Spotted.
3: So in they went. Not into the hotel where Hyson was staying but into another one where he had stayed some time previously. Hyson knew the geography of the place perfectly. He took his unsuspecting victim through the deserted trade entrance and up the servants staircase to the first floor where he found an unoccupied bedroom.
1: Okay, in you come.
10: Thanks. Donald, are you sure this is your room? Of course, why? It looks so empty. No clothes, nothing on the dressing table. <laughs>
1: Well, I'm naturally a tidy person. they right, come and sit down.
10: This was an invitation to a drink.
1: No, there are better things to do than drink. Come on, sit down.
10: Now, look here. I may be tough, but I'm not... Sit oh, down.
6: Why, you beast! I'll scream. Well, there's, a, ah!
1: there's a present ah! for you. Powder puff ah! in your mouth. That'll ah! keep you quiet. Ah. Now, my beauty, I've got you exactly where oh. I want you. Ah!
3: Again, those big, strong hands did their dreadful work. And when it was all over, Hyson removed the improvised gag from his victim's mouth, took her money, and returned unseen to his own hotel where the chambermaid awoke him from a sound sleep at eight o'clock the following morning.
8: Morning, sir. Not a very cheerful one, I'm afraid. I'll pull back the curtains. Oh, it's pouring outside and nasty and cold. Now drink your tea while it's hot. And here's your newspapers.
1: Eh? Huh? Oh, the papers, yes. thanks. Thanks very much.
8: Not
6: at all.
1: (laughs) Papers. Now let me see.
3: Woman found strangled in small hotel. Murder in South Kensington. Police are making widespread inquiries amongst the deceased friends and acquaintances in the hope of tracking down the murderer. The staff and members of a
1: well-known Kensington club are being questioned this morning. They are, are they? Then the chances are that the swine who split on me to the South African War Department is going to open his mouth again. He'll remember I was with her. I must get out of London, quick.
6: It so
3: happened that Hyson's panic was needless. The RAF officer was posted now and he didn't come forward. Neither did the man who had introduced Hyson to his victim. But the scientists at Scotland Yard were becoming interested in... ...traces of pink wool, which they found in the dead woman's mouth.
1: There's no doubt we've got particles of face powder on this fragment. So the murderer must have gagged her with a powder puff, of all things. But her own powder puff, which is
5: white, was still in her handbag. That means the puff which was used by the murderer was taken away by him.
1: The fibres are quite new. There's no dust on them, and the powder hasn't had time to get into the material. There's a thread of lace here, too.
5: We'd better let the superintendent know right away. Superintendent Brandruth
1: of
3: Scotland Yard was then faced with the tremendous task of trying to trace an unknown man who might have bought a pink powder puff with lace trimmings. The information and the request for assistance was published in newspapers throughout the country, and Hyson read about it in the seaside town of Eastbourne. For the first time in his life, Richard Hyson panicked. In a split second, he saw the net closing in. He reasoned that Doreen Wimpson, the girl he'd brought the powder puff for, would very soon tell the police. If he was caught, he must plead insanity. To establish insanity, he must commit another murder. And this time there must be no motive. So that night, in a deserted street on the outskirts of the town, he waited for an unknown victim. It was dark. The few houses were scattered well back from the road. For nearly an hour, nothing stirred while murder waited to strike in the shadows. Go back, little girl, go back, go back. No, she must come on. He's waiting with those big, strong hands, tense and ready. <laughs> The powder puff becomes a gag for the second time. The deed is done.
1: I might have got away with a lot if Doreen Winson hadn't remembered the powder puff. She identified it, didn't she? Yes, I knew she'd get me The chaplain's here, Hyson. Tell him to go to blazes. I'll be waiting for him. Got another cigarette? No, thanks. I was picked up by the police the next day. (laughs) Even then, I nearly convinced them that they'd got the wrong man. They held me from three in the afternoon until two the next morning before I told them I was Richard Hyson and proud of it. But still, they couldn't really prove I'd killed the two women until they had my coat pocket examined in the laboratory. Then they found traces of face powder and little shreds from the puff in it. Tough, that. Tough, wasn't it, Padre, eh? <laughs> Why, what are you looking so mournful about? I'm the one to worry. Ah, so the hangman's here at last. Yes, Hyson. It's nearly over. Well? If nobody's going to say anything, I will. <laughs> Come on, boys, get the straps on and let's get going.
3: And so Richard Hyson is led to his appointed place on the trapdoors of the scaffold. A white bag is slipped over his head. The rope lodges under his chin, and while the chaplain intones the service of the dead, the trapdoors open, and Hyson goes fluttering down into the dark cavity below. Justice has been achieved, and all because of the faded pink powder puff which can be seen now in the Black Museum. <laughs>
2: Orson Wells will be back with you in just a moment.
3: Hyson loved the limelight, and he was nothing if not bold. He did serve in the Army and the Air Force, but his decorations and his tales of gallantry and action were all lies. He lived on lies, forever hoping that they would never catch up with him. But one by one, they did. And with them came the evidence. From the bad check he gave to the General in the Middle East the pink powder puff he gave to the one girl he admired in London. He hoped, of course, that the world would believe him to be insane. That would have spared him the final horror of the scaffold. and He might have been alive today in the grim fastnesses of Broadmoor, the criminal asylum. Was he mad? Well, you've heard the story. So another chapter of murder is closed and the little pink powder puff faded now has its place in criminal history. And now until we meet next time in the same place, I tell you another story about the Black Museum. I remain as always obediently yours.
0: The Black Museum with a Pink Powder Puff starring Orson Welles from March 18, 1952 as heard over Mutual. Stick around, I'll give you our lineup for episode 62 of The Classic Radio Theater after this break. time on episode 62 of the classic radio theater brought to you by the bradford exchange we'll hear two mystery episodes of suspense one of them starring ronald reagan so don't miss it to reach me and to learn more about the classic radio club visit classicradioclub.com be sure to tune in to our next show thanks for listening